Dear Lord God, we are grateful that we have the kind of fellowship that's small, that's interested in speaking and gathering together to talk of the things of you and things in your word. We'd ask that you would help us become established as the kind of believers you want your people to be. In your son's name, amen. Okay, now, sometimes you can go on in a small church like this and not, not even know that things are going on. There's been a guy's Bible study that has met for, I don't know, how long has it met? I don't go to it. Five or six years. And they meet in the chapter house, or as some call it, the shed. And uh, they go through books of the Bible, pray together, deal with things. Uh, last couple of weeks, they, because something, we'll just, we'll just say something happened. They had to meet at our house. So they met at our house. Then last week, they also had to meet at our house because somebody couldn't find the key to the shed. Hey, if you have the key, if you have a key to the shed, return it. It's not yours. Um, and they just started going through the book of Daniel. So consequently, I, don't, I, I do not go to this Bible study, but conversations tumble out of it during the week. Graham has been talking about the Bible study, and uh, Tristan has mentioned a few things uh, Daniel has been on, on, the, on the playing field. So naturally, I was thinking about Daniel this morning. Um, I think that one of the things I have liked about Daniel is I've, I've always been a fan of great kings, conquerors, anybody who'd take other people's stuff, you know. So Cyrus the Great, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Alexander the Great. Someday, maybe, Evan the Great. But I haven't got any battalions, I haven't got any army, I haven't got any... Easy enough to pick a fight with Lewiston or Pullman, maybe just get, get a start, march west, take Seattle, or maybe just burn it, just burn it, as an example to other West Coast cities. I've been a fan of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, for those of you who don't care, was the great king of the Neo-Babylonian uh, dynasty coming up out of the uh, Assyrian period and uh, challenged the Assyrians when he was still just a general, son of his father, Nabopolassar. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon, um, obviously during the time of Daniel, Ezekiel, those guys. He's great. I mean, he's just a great name. Hung out with the right kind of prophets. But Nebuchadnezzar, in the first four chapters, the first four chapters of Daniel are the Nebuchadnezzar chapters. Matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar writes the fourth chapter of Daniel. So there's a... Uh, um, a series of stories. You know them. You got them in your Bible story book. You got them in Sunday school if you went to a real church. You had this little scene with Daniel refusing the king's rich food, right? And he comes away with 
a more sleek and fat existence for eating vegetables. It's not a popular passage with me. And then in chapter 2, um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, but he doesn't remember it. He threatens to kill all the magicians unless they can remember for him. And Daniel does. Chapter 3, it's the three Jew boys, Azariah, um, Hananiah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And uh, they won't bow down to the idol, and they get thrown to the fiery furnace. One of my favorite Bible story books was the book called IC4. Did anybody else ever have that? Great illustrations, uh, sort of comic rendering of, a humorous rendering of the story. And then in chapter 4, you have the famous story of Nebuchadnezzar losing his marbles for seven years, we presume, seven times. And in those four lessons, we're covering three of them because I wanted to keep it to Nebuchadnezzar's learning curve. There are three things Nebuchadnezzar learns. And oftentimes, some of my favorite guys in the Bible are Daniel and Joseph. Daniel and Joseph uh, don't have anything wrong recorded about them. There's that. I mean, what, the Bible doesn't shy away from letting you know that, well, he cheated on his wife. But other than that, sir, um, he was a fine, upstanding Christian. Or he did various things, or he killed too many people. Daniel and Joseph just were just sort of mystics. They were both prime ministers or grand viziers of the kingdom, the pagan kingdom they were in. They both were mystics. Um, And so Daniel becomes kind of a good example of what we have to deal with because we're living in some God-forsaken nation. And to the degree you advance, the degree you present our God and Christ to people, um, these awarenesses, this dealing with a pagan king might be helpful. And one of the basic things as I was meditating in the tub or soaking in my concepts. Um, and I was looking at these, I didn't have my Bible in the bathtub, so I had to just remember what was going on and then come back and check later. Um, an awful lot of evangelism is about us, either um, positively, hey, would you like to come to church with me? Because, you know, Get somebody, meet all the Christians, all the nice people. You guys are nice people, right? Get a non-Christian here and introduce them around. Nice people. Good, good experience with Christians. We also negatively are aware of ourselves in the church when we are make apology for the state or the behavior of Christians throughout history. We want to get that off the table. Well, it's not our, the Spanish Inquisition wasn't our thing or killing all those people in wherever, you know, England. You know how we killed the Anabaptists? Well, we're sorry about that. We know that we have to apologize for things, but sometimes, and it's not, I'm not objecting to you inviting someone to church. For heaven's sake, we need people. But I noticed that in these four situations, I give you 
in the four passages, you, three passages you're looking at here, I'm giving you Nebuchadnezzar's assessment at the end of the event. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on a, upon his face and did homage or homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king said to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods, and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. Now Daniel had told him prior in that chapter, I have it here on the left-hand side, when he's petitioning to be allowed to interpret the dream, this is the circumstance about his dream that he couldn't remember, he says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now, what I'd like you to sort of pose to yourself is how much inadvertently we have made the gospel about us. And that it's our ad people's admiration for us. Could we do stress, and I think it's right that we do so, that our lives befit the gospel we serve. But sometimes we're so, we, we, the ditch on the other side is to be too thinking, thinking too much about how I represent Christianity and not enough about what Christianity is about. Truly your God is God of gods. That's the phrase you want to have come out of the lips of the person you invited to church. <coughs> An awful lot goes in in the modern age. We are the children of a Greco-Roman rational history, and we want to have apologetics and, and pastors who are schooled and understand and, and what? Can out-argue an atheist or an agnostic, have good arguments, have a lot of you know, head knowledge, which is, I, I love that stuff. I think it's good. I think Daniel had that stuff, and I think Daniel had those capabilities. That's why they were picked out to be the hostages in the court in Babylon, because he was smart. But I like the fact that Nebuchadnezzar sees God through the haze of how smart Daniel is. Daniel sees God through the haze of how smart Daniel is. He knows he's smart. He knows that he has got something to offer, and it, he is the one that tells the king the mystery. And the king goes, oh my gosh, your God is the revealer of mysteries. Does the, do the non-believers see, as we labor to represent our God and our faith intellectually, do they see God through that? Or do they see you through that? Do you kind of hope that they see you because it means that they think you're smart? Is that a good enough conversion? As long as they come to, you know, the Eventine understanding, well, Evan is such a fine preacher. I have a good friend who thinks I'm an awful preacher. I don't speak with him anymore. 
we sometimes get caught up. And I don't think, again, these are things that we shouldn't be conscious of. We want to represent the faith in us faithfully, but sometimes we're not looking to have them recognize it about God. Because this is what the gospel is, reconciling man to God, not to the church, not to the other Christians, but to God. They haven't sinned against us, they sinned against God. they got to get that worked out. They have got to come to grips with that he is the revealer of mysteries. Now, I'm not saying that the three events in Nebuchadnezzar's life that we have recorded in Daniel are the three, you know, pastors are always looking for three-point sermons. You know, here's three points. You don't want to say these are the only things that we're, we're passing on. But I noticed that all of them were about our God and not about us. Though they were represented in Daniel or the three Jew boys, I don't know if you recall that. I'm from an older set, and it's the three little Jew boys. It's not an anti-Semitic thing. I'm in favor of these guys. Nebuchadnezzar in verse chapter 3, it's the second passage, said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had just said to him, about to be thrown to the fiery furnace, and I have it on the left-hand side. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, when we are not delivered, the non-believer could be look, looking at the dead bodies of the Christians in the Colosseum or the charred bodies of the Jew boys in the furnace and say, wow, they were pretty brave guys. I'm impressed. They believed faithfully that their God would deliver them. That's as far as it goes. A lot of Muslims give their lives for their view of Allah. People have given their lives for, for families, not alone religions, nations. They go out and kill and be killed for the sake of the Constitution of the United States. Now, they could be impressed with the martyrdom. But we're about something else. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent uh, his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set at naught the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Once again, Nebuchadnezzar makes a rather uh, harsh law, but he's recognizing something about God, not something about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They did it. He was impressed. He would have been impressed about them even if they weren't delivered. And that's, they had gone into it that way. Even if he doesn't, we're not doing it. 
Even if God does not deliver us, we're not bowing down to your idol. But he did deliver. Because not being delivered is only a message about you. And every group that has a faithful martyr is able to say that same message. People of faith, of different faiths, of different religions have died for their view of God. It says something about them. We're trying to say something about God. So you might want to think of the actual deliverance. Where you trusted God for whatever it was. And God it didn't just show you were willing to believe and roll the dice and, and take whatever came. But that you were delivered. And it's evident that you were delivered. There's no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Is your life an example of that? We don't get thrown into fiery furnaces frequently. Pardon the alliteration. We don't get those opportunities where some rash secular humanist is holding a gun to your head and said, you know, dodge this, and the bullet just swerves out of the gun and and hits a bird flying by rather than you. And you smile smugly at him and you say, the power of the living God. You don't have those opportunities. But were you delivered? Did God do anything? Did God, going back to the mystery, she's the, he is the revealer of mysteries. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In the Holy One of Israel, there is insight. That's where it rests. And when you come forward with the things you study, are you finding yourself stepping further into, a, the, you might say, the proof of the God that people see in your wisdom and the mysteries you understand, the proof that you have spoken with the gods and their eye naturally goes past your shoulder to look behind you at the God that you stand for. Not that you're just really, really faithful and would die for Jesus. Can we point to any deliverance? And are we aware that people are looking for, Nebuchadnezzar's looking for, I mean, he's a pagan. He's got all sorts of you know, temples and idols in Babylon that he serves. But he's reckoning, he's willing to, <laughs> what's he say? Torn limb from limb. You speak, you speak about this God. He's learned something about God that I will tear somebody up. There's another great, one of my favorite verses. It's not Nebuchadnezzar, it's Darius. Uh, probably the second. Uh, if anyone fails to obey this edict, let his house be torn down and him be impaled upon a beam of it. You've got to remember certain verses because they're really good. It, uh, nothing. I got You don't care about the scriptures. Wanting us to have a recognition of the task we are about. Sometimes we don't know our God as well as we think we do. We know about him. We know we've committed ourselves to serve him. We are doing things, learning about him, etc., etc. But he isn't even a he that much. Any agency, any set-apart personalness far greater than you, but if you don't know who he is, 
who he is is not going to be communicated through these kind of victories where his ability to reveal a mystery. When you quote the scriptures to somebody, sometimes we get a little embarrassed. We want our apologetics to not be the scriptures. We want them to be rational. It's harder to actually give credit to God for that. You know, if you say, you know, it says in the scriptures and quote them a passage, you didn't get away with claiming that one. It's not about you. They might not, even like, might not like the Bible, but they know you didn't write the Bible. If I come up with an argument, it might be a good argument, but I'm going to get credit for it. I'm going to get credit for that, putting that together. Oh, you sure think a lot about stuff. But I want to have people see God whence your knowledge came, whence your deliverance came. Are they ready to kill other people for bad-mouthing your God who obviously delivers people? Is the life you lead so clearly... We, well, we, I think we, we would love to see it with somebody who led a, let's call it a rough life before they became a Christian. We like to see that, right? Because we see the deliverance. We like those testimonies because they're about deliverance. Be thinking about your own. This is not to speak any, in, in any way negatively of the things I am setting aside for the things that point towards God. They have their value. Here, Nebuchadnezzar goes through three stages of learning who God is, and he is clear enough that he's stepping apart from Daniel or Azariah <clears throat> and seeing God. Now, the last one, there is in the uh, chapter 4, the chapter 4, we know this is written by Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar starts the chapter uh, with that bit on the left-hand side, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has wrought toward me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. That's how he begins chapter 4, and all of chapter 4 is his story. Some of it is in the third person, others in the first. But he wants to tell you where he's going with this. He has learned of God the Most High God. We got to know him, and we have to know that that's what saves people, is the desire to know, the feel after him and the hopes that they might find him. Not feel after us and the hope they might find a good church or a nice moral people to raise their kids around. That's not what we're here for. We're here to introduce people to Jesus Christ and the Father. You get to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's why we say, in Jesus' name, amen, because Jesus said, that's how you have access to the Father. We know we are looking, or should be, our theology practically should be about coming to know the Father, coming to know Yahweh, the God. 
And then as we evangelize, we're not trying to get people to join Christendom or even Christianity. They should join Christianity so they can be close to that God. The God that saves, the God that delivers, the God that interprets mysteries, and the God that is greatest, the most high God. And when you say the most high God, this is what you ought to be meaning. This is what you ought to, these are three simple arenas. Is your God the God of mysteries? Is your God the God of deliverance? And is your God the absolute most high? Nothing higher. No God out there higher. And I don't know if you're a monotheist. The word is actually monolatry. We are worshipers of one God. Monotheists say there is only one God. Now you might believe you might be a monotheist, but you're at least a monolatrist, which you only you worship this God. There could be other gods running around that are not the most high. You don't worship them. You worship no other God. You shall have, what's the commandment? No other gods before me. The most high God question is one you want to be looking at in terms of evangelizing people. Are they learning from you, one, that your understanding of the world comes from your knowledge of God? And it's God whose reputation is increased by your knowledge. Two, the change in who you are, the deliverance you've encountered, who you are in front of them is because of the God who delivered you. And thirdly, is this God unbeatable? At the end of the days, you know the story where he got it kind of proud. He was the greatest king on earth. I mean, think of how you'd feel. Think of how you feel. I've got a comfy chair in my library, and I think I'm all that. He was ruling the known world. No one greater than he. And it was a glorious no one greater than he. You know, gold thrones sort of thing. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. This is much like Romans 1, because they do not honor God or give him thanks. He gives them up to the futility of their minds. Their senseless minds are darkened. Nebuchadnezzar had that little bit personally delivered to him. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. That was the, I pulled that out as the memorable section. It's part of a verse. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. That is the, that is the, point, you, you, that is the point that rescues someone from themselves. Because you know that all the problems in the world are everybody having a certain degree of conceit about the, who's in charge of their life, and usually it's themselves. And when you find the most high, and find it this way, he will be praised and honored. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? 
He just, he, he, his run-on sentence, he doesn't stop. He had been warned of this because he had been thinking of himself, as many ancient kings did. I mean, Solomon said, with the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what doest thou? Because he's the king. Nebuchadnezzar undoubtedly thought that too. Sitting on his golden throne. And that's where God's looking at him saying, yeah, you've got majesty, you've got might. I have on the left-hand side the earlier part of Daniel 4, after he relates the dream that he has about this. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a moment. His thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belteshazzar, do, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, answered, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And I skipped ahead. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, that you know that heaven rules. That's what we're preaching. We're preaching of this God. You need to bow the knee to this God. You need to be seeing that you're not Daniel, who is a faithful servant, well-liked by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar sees all shook up by the vision because he likes the king and he wants to serve the king. And he says, the king's going to be driven mad unless he repents. And he's not going to repent. But, you know, he, unless he does. And he warns him. Perhaps there will be a lengthening of your tranquility if you would just knock it off. Because we are trying to bring people to reconcile themselves to God the work of Jesus Christ, that they would understand that they are not in charge. That none can stay his hand. You will face either humbling yourselves or you will face being humiliated. You do not get out of here alive. Everyone gets judged as inadequate, not just judged as evil, but judged as stupid, judged as inadequate, judged as wrong-headed, judged as a fool. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counsels and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. It wasn't you know, doing the St. Francis of Assisi nonsense where I have learned that all of the wards of this world are but nothing. I will have no more of it. I will wander off into the waste and do a Cincinnatus or a Lycurgus departure. Having done his good for Babylon. He said, no, no, it wasn't like that. I, I repented. Everything came back and I'm a lot greater than I was. But now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to abase. What a, I fully expect to see this guy in glory. Great, one of the great kings, greater than anybody you can imagine in, in the Jewish kingdom, far greater. Whether he is or not, I don't know. But he sees it clearly. He writes 
what you would call inspired scripture about it, clearly. But what you recognize, this is about God. And everything you're doing is about his reaching out to man in the grace of God. His reaching out to you. His reaching out to the guy you're ministering to. It's not how well you can get that person to join up with the Sunday club we're part of. We want people to know that they need to know God and consequently need whatever path of reconciliation. What sacrifice is it going to take? How am I going to get to him? That they know what they have to give and they know what they get. I would encourage you that we not think about Christianity as if it was the collection of all of us now. Um, What's that hymn by Ralph Vaughan Williams? Uh, for all the saints, you know, speaking of the, the nobility of the church down through the ages. Here we go. Uh, there's a lot of noble Christians down through the ages. God bless them. Get to read some of them. Get to see, hear about their lives. But we're not selling that. We're selling the God. We're moving people towards the God. That's what matters to them, if we start to make it about us, um, it's tempting because if we make it about us as Christians, we sometimes can hide the usness of it because we're talking about our faith or about our unity as a body. and It's really just a click at that point. We're trying to get people to join. You want them to want God and who've encountered something that is far above anything they can imagine. Let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We'd ask that you would continue to move yourself to front of our line inside our minds as we contemplate your mysteries, as we contemplate your deliverance, and as we contemplate your great Greatness in righteousness, justice, and ability to humble. Lord, we would ask that you would humble us and that we'd start leading with speaking of you and your wonderful son. And in his name we pray, amen.